0: This is day twenty-eight of our daily Bible reading. We will be covering Numbers chapters nineteen through twenty-three today. Lord Heavenly Father, as we come into your word, Lord, that we would surrender our will to you. We would tune out the things of this world, Lord, and we would just commune with you at this time, just to spend time with you, Lord, in your in your word, in your presence, that we may be sanctified. We may be be made more holy, closer to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Please reveal yourself today in your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, that they bring you an unblemished red heifer, in which is no defect, and on which a yoke has never been placed. You shall give it to Eliezer the priest, and it shall be outside the camp and be slaughtered in his presence. Next, Eliezer the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of the blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight, its hide and its flesh and its blood with its refuse, shall be burned. The priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet material, and cast it into the midst of the burning heifer. The priest shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward come into the camp, but the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns it shall also wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water. And shall be unclean until evening. Now, a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And the congregation of the sons of Israel shall keep it as water to remove impurity. It is purification from sin. The one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening and it shall be a perpetual statute to the sons of Israel and to the alien who sojourns among them. The one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. That one shall purify himself from uncleanliness with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day And on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died, and does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel. Because the water for impurity was not sprinkled on him, but he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. This is the law when a man dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. Every open vessel which has no covering tied down on it shall be unclean. Also, anyone who in the open field touches one who has been slain with a sword or who has died naturally or a human bone or a grave, shall be unclean for seven days. Then for the unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the burnt purification from sin and flowing water, shall be added to them in a vessel. A clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on the furnishings and on the persons who were there and on the one who touched the bone or the one slain or the one dying naturally, or the grave. Then the clean person shall sprinkle on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day he shall purify him from uncleanness. And he shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and shall be clean by evening. But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself from uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly, because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water for impurity has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. So it shall be a perpetual statute for them. And he who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash his clothes. And he who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean until evening. Furthermore. Anything that the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there, and was buried there. There was no water for the congregation and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord! Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness, for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod. And you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation, and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, Listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. From Kadesh, Moses then sent messengers to the king of Edom, Thus your brother Israel has said, You know all the hardship that has befallen us, that our fathers went down to Egypt, and we stayed in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians treated us and our fathers badly. But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice, and sent an angel, and brought us out from Egypt. Now behold, we are at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or through vineyard. We will not even drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway, not turning to the right or left until we pass through your territory. Edom, however, said to him, You shall not pass through us, or I will come out with the sword against you. Again, the sons of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and if I and my livestock do drink any of your water, then I will pay its price. Let me only pass through on my feet, nothing else. But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against him with a heavy force and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. Now when they set out from Kadesh, the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to Mount Hor. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron will be gathered to his people for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the sons of Israel, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and his son Eleazar, and bring them up to Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eleazar. So Aaron will be gathered to his people and will die there. So Moses did just as the Lord had commanded, and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. After Moses had stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eleazar, Aaron died there on the mountaintop. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. When all the congregation saw that Aaron had died, all the house of Ez- Israel wept for Aaron thirty days. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. The Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them and their cities. Thus the name of the place was called Hormah. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient impatient Because of the journey, the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord, that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten When he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now the sons of Israel moved out and camped in Oboth. They journeyed from Oboth and camped at Ea Arabim in the wilderness which is opposite Moab, to the east. From there they set out and camped in Wadi Zered. From there they journeyed and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that comes out of the border of the Amorites. For the Arnon is the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. Thus it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Waheb and Supah, and the wadis of the Arnon, and the slope of the wadis that extends to the site of Ar, and leads to the border of Moab. From there, they continued to Beer, that is, the well where the Lord said to Moses, Assemble the people, that I may give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing to it the well which the leaders sank, which the nobles of the people dug, with the scepter and with their staffs. And from the wilderness they continued to Matanah, and from Matanah to Nahalil, and from Nahalail to Bamoth, and from Bamoth to the valley that is in the land of Moab, at the top of Pisgah, which overlooks the wasteland. Then Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, saying, "Let me pass through your land. We will not turn off into field or vineyard. We will not drink water from wells. We will go by the king's highway, and we ha- until we have passed through your border." But Sion would not permit Israel to pass through his border. So Sion gathered all his people. And went out against Israel in the wilderness, and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Then Israel struck him with the edge of the sword, and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, as far as the sons of Ammon, for the border of the sons of Ammon was Jazer. Israel took all these cities, and Israel lived in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon, and in all her villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sion, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab, and had taken all his land out of his hand, as far as the Arnon. Therefore those who say Proverbs say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built. So let the city of Sion be established. For a fire went forth from Heshbon, a flame from the town of Sion. It devoured Ar of Moab, the dominant heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab! You are ruined, O people of Jamash. He has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity to an Amorite king, Sion. But we have cast them down. Heshbon is ruined as far as Dabon. Then we have laid waste even to Nopha, which reaches to Medeba. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up by the way of Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, went out with all his people for battle at Edrei. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand, and all his people and his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sion, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon. So they killed him and his sons and all his people, until there was no remnant left him, and they possessed his land. Then the sons of Israel journeyed, and camped in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan, opposite Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous, and Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this horde will lick up all that that is around us, as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of Moab at that time. So he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river, in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, a people came out of Egypt. Behold! They cover the surface of the land, and they are living opposite me. Now therefore, please come. Curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed." So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and repeated Balak's words to him. He said to them, Spend the night here, and I will bring back word to you, as the Lord may speak to me. And the leaders of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, "Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent word to me. Behold, there is a people who came out of Egypt, and they cover the surface of the land. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I may be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, Do not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. So Balaam arose in the morning and said to Balak's leaders, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. The leaders of Moab arose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. Then Balak again sent leaders, more numerous and more distinguished than the former. They came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I beg you, hinder you from coming to me. For I will indeed honor you richly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Please come then, curse this people for me. Balaam replied to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything, either small or great contrary to the command of the Lord my God. Now please, you also stay here tonight, and I will find out what else the Lord will speak to me. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you shall you do. So Balaam arose in the morning, and saddled his donkey, and went with the leaders of Moab. But God was angry because he was going. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, With his drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. But Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the way. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path of the vineyards, with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right hand or the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you, that you have struck me these three times? Then Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey, on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed all the way to the ground. The angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary because your way was contrary to me. But the donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, I would have surely have killed you just now and let her live. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the way against me. Now then, if it is displeasing to you, I will turn back. But the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but you shall speak only the word which I tell you. So Balaam went along with the leaders of Balak. When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the Arnon border. At the extreme end of the border, then Balak said to Balaam, Did I not urgently send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I really unable to honor you? So Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come now to you. Am I able to speak anything at all? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I shall speak. And Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath Huzath. Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep, and sent some to Balaam and the leaders who were with him. Then it came about in the morning that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high place of Baal, and he saw from there a portion of the people. Then Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars for me here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me here. Balak did just as Balaam had spoken, and Balak and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a bare hill. Now God met Balaam and he said to him, I have set up the seven altars and I have offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak and you will speak thus. So he returned to him and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering, he and all the leaders of Moab. He took up his discourse and said, From Aram Balak has brought me, Moab's king from the mountains of the east. Come curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? As I see him from the top of the rocks, and I look at him from the hills, behold, a people who dwells apart and will not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob, or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright, and let my end be like his. Then Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have actually blessed them. He replied, Must I not be careful to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? Then Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place, from where we may see them, although you will only see the extreme end of them, and will not see all of them, and curse them for me from there. So he took him to the field of Zophim on the top of Pisgah, and built seven altars, and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And he said to Balak, Stand here beside your burnt offering, while I myself meet the Lord over there. Then the Lord met Balaam, and put a word in his mouth, and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. He came to him, and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering. And the leaders of Moab with him. And Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? Then he took up his discourse and said, Arise, O Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken? And will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. When he has blessed, then I cannot revoke it. He has not observed misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no omen against Jacob, nor is there any divination against Israel. At the proper time it shall be said to Jacob and to Israel what God has done. Behold, a people rises like a lioness, and as a lion it lifts itself. It will not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. Then Balak said to Balaam, Do not curse them at all, nor bless them at all. But Balaam replied to Balak, Did I not tell you? Whatever the Lord speaks, that I must do. Then Balak said to Balaam, Please come, I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will be agreeable with God that you curse them for me from there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the wasteland. Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars for me here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me here. Balak did just as Balaam had said and offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. At the very end of this, I just could not contain it because the 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 back and forth dialogue between these two guys is just really cracking me up. <laughs> Oh, man, these guys are funny. So let's go back a little bit. So chapter 19 is pretty much entirely dedicated to how to handle purification of somebody who's been around a dead body. To God, that was one of the worst ways of being defiled, was to be around death. Now, why is that? Well, one, it's just unsanitary to be around death. And to be around dead bodies and decay, right? But from a spiritual sense as well, the whole point of this is to understand that when he purifies us, the word purify is like to cleanse you from your sin, to unsin you, so to speak. And what are we being cleansed from In when we are saved by the grace of God? We are cleansed from unrighteousness and from sin. And like it says in the New Testament, it says that the wages of sin is death. So not only is it culturally something to stay away from, staying away from death, but also understanding that sin is death. And you do not want to be defiled physically, nor should you be defiled Spiritually, you should be clean, you should be holy, just like I am holy, like God has commanded them to be. So, it's not just a physical thing, everything has a spiritual um, purpose to it beyond just uh, a set of rules that they're just meant to follow. And then we come to chapter 20, and we see what happens that yet again the Israelites are complaining, there's no water. Why would you lead us out here to die? Why would you take us to this wretched place? There's no food, blah, 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 right? So God tells Moses and Aaron, go to this particular rock and speak to it. Just speak to it. Talk to it. Do nothing else. But take the rod with you. How very interesting that God tells them to take the rod. Almost as if he knew their heart, right? He knew their heart. He knew that after all this complaining, Moses and Aaron were upset. They were angry because they were tired of these people complaining all the time. And he was obviously holding a grudge because as soon as they went to the rock, they didn't even say anything else. He just stood in front of the rock and said, all right, you rebels, you know, and he just just got angry with them. And so he struck the rock twice. And because of his disobedience, both Moses and Aaron, they are both there, present, when neither of them stopped each other, right? Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Moses has been very faithful for many years, making very little to no mistakes during the process, right? I mean, he's... He's been immature and, you know, he's been developing himself as a leader, but to flat out disobey the Lord, this is the first time. And then, you know, you look at this at a glance, this looks like such a severe punishment, right? I mean, he makes one mistake and now he can't go into the land of promise. He is not allowed to lead them into the promised land. That... At a glance, your average person will look at this and say, that is unfair. Right? That is not fair, God. These other people, they keep spouting this stuff, and you let them live for the the time being. But let Moses do one thing wrong, and now you're punishing him big time for it. That's not cool, God. We have to be very careful with that attitude. For one, that is completely and utterly disrespectful to our God. But secondly is, why did he do it? It says elsewhere in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, I don't have it referenced in front of me at the moment, but it talks about that those who are leaders and those who are teachers have a greater responsibility from God to lead people with integrity. And when we teach, we teach them only the truth, the absolute truth. And we should not cause people to err. We should not cause people to believe false doctrines that we should leave with integrity, right? Honestly, and in God's image, right? Because we are his representatives as Christians. People are not going to see God they're going to see us as a representation of what Jesus is like. That's what, that's what it means to be Christ-like, is to be like Christ. And that's what people see, and that's what attracts them. That's what makes them interested in us to where, what makes you so different? And there's your opportunity to share the gospel with them, right? Moses was the leader of almost 2 million people and in front of all these 2 million people he disrespected the lord and completely disobeyed him not only in his heart because he was angry and bitter towards these israelites but he did not obey god's direct command and so he got punished because of how much influence he has instead of being selfish and just wanting to you know show those rebels How I feel about them. He should have just obeyed the Lord, and he would not have been punished thus. Now I say that completely understanding that I am a fallen human being too, and I make mistakes plenty all day long. I'm in my life, I'm a leader everywhere I go. I'm a leader at my job, I'm a leader at church, I'm a leader in my home. And so it gets to you sometimes. I understand. It, sometimes it gets to you or it feels very lonely or it feels just like all the pressures of the world are on you. And there's no one to share it with because you're the top person or, you know, you're kind of in an isolated situation. And it's just after a while, it gets to you if you let it. And that can cause you to get bitter. That can cause you to get angry and resentful to the people who don't have that responsibility. But in doing so, we will be ruining our witness. And we don't want to ruin our witness with people. Because just like respect and trust, those are hard things to earn. And if they're broken, it's hard to get it back. And so it's important that, especially in the public eye, if we have our issues, which we we will, I mean, we're going to struggle and we're going to wrestle with things emotions and doctrine, things like that. But don't do it in front of people where you will just lose your witness. And even worse, you do it in front of just a handful of people. In the world I live in, the environments I live in, people are such huge gossips here. Everybody knows everything as soon as it happens. So if I do that to somebody and I mouth off at them, I call them names, I cuss at them, whatever the case may be, and I make a fool of myself, it's going to get around very fast, and my witness is shot. So I challenge you, don't get upset with God. This was very serious, what Moses did. He didn't kill him, and you're going to see that he still loves him, and he still blesses him later. You'll see. But no, he does not get to go into the land, he or Aaron. So then, they tried to go through the land of Edom. If we remember, Edom is the people of Esau. And they refused to let them cut through the land for a, no a good reason. Just, Just no. They just refused. And then the second time they asked and they said, I don't think you got it the first time. But the answer was no. And they brought some army out, some military to show, hey, we're serious. Get out of here. So they left. And then Aaron was taken up on top of a mountain, and you see the succession of the high priest position go to Eliezer, is his successor as the high priest of Israel. And so um, right there, Aaron is killed. I know it seems really fast, but we're getting through the end of the 40 years already. They just wandered around. okay. And so at this point... The death of Aaron was in the 40th year of the Exodus. And his death, he was about 123, which we're going to see later. It will confirm this, but he was 123 years old when he died. He was the first high priest that Israel ever had. But the last high priest is Jesus Christ, the one who will never die. He died once, but he rose from the dead. And he lives today as our eternal high priest, which is why we don't need a high priest making sacrifices anymore for us because Christ has done it all for us for all eternity. And here's another form of Christ, the bronze serpent. So the people sin, right? They again are starting to complain. You brought us out of the land to die. And we have no food and no water and we loathe this miserable food. What food are they talking about? They're talking about the manna. They hate the manna. They're sick and tired of this manna years after years after years. Oh, we don't want this anymore. And God was angry. So he's like, all right, you want to be like that? Here are some fiery serpents. Now, I don't know what kind of fiery serpents they are, if they're actually made out of fire or if they were just, you know, poisonous snakes that would burn you. It had a burning sensation if you got bit. I don't know. That one seems more believable, but anything's possible with God, really. But either way, people were dying, and they asked for intercession. And so God said to make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. When they looked at it, they were saved. From Descriptions outside of the Bible, it was similar to be in the shape of a cross. And why is this significant? Because even Jesus, when he's speaking to, I believe it was Nicodemus, when he mentions the bronze serpent on the pole, just like Moses lifted up the pole, the serpent in the desert, so will the Son of Man be lifted up for the sins of the world. Something like that which would be John chapter 3. This was a kind of Christ. Now, what's interesting, though, is this is a symbol of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. But what is the important thing we know about our Christianity compared to a Catholic? True Christianity, we represent ourselves with a cross, right? And that's fine. We shouldn't worship the cross, right? But the cross is where Jesus died. What's different between our cross and the Catholic cross? The Catholic cross, Christ is still on it, the crucifix. He's still on it. And they worship him on that cross in sacrament of the mass. It is wrong because they believe that they are sacrificing Christ over and over again to keep the perpetual thing going. When again, it has nothing to do with mankind, God has done everything, and we don't have to do that. That is blasphemy, and that is heresy to do that, to sacrifice Christ all over again. Because in other words, it's saying that Christ's death the first time was not enough. And that is completely, completely against the Bible. The same Bible that they hold in their laps on their Sundays. So, very disturbing. But... What is on the serpent, what is on the, I just said it right there, what is on the pole in the desert? It is a serpent. Who else is represented by a serpent? Hmm? Do you recall Genesis? I believe in the Garden of Eden there was a serpent who caused, or rather did not cause, he does not cause people to sin. He influenced them to sin. He tempted them to sin. But that is Satan in the form of a serpent. When you look upon the cross and you see that serpent stuck to the cross, he is dead by the power of the cross. Jesus Christ has defeated Satan. He has won the victory for us, and it has already been declared for a long time now. So we know how things are going to end, and that should give us nothing but hope. When they would look at this poll, they they would be kept alive, because. Jesus Christ is our life. He's the one who gives us eternal life. And apart from that, we have nothing. That serpent is dead. He is defeated. And he knows it. And that's why he goes after us so hard, because he knows he's doomed. But he's going to take as many of us down as he can or make our lives so frustrating and apart from God that we're useless. And a useless Christian has no purpose. And then we see the... Battles uh, between Sion, king of the Amorites, and then Og, the king of Bashan, which you will see many psalms especially and other parts of Scripture that remind the people that God conquered it for them. He won the battle for them. So, and it's very true that's the way it happened, because it says that um, Israel struck them down with the sword, and they won. Both of them. And you'll see later that uh, when we look at Og, the king of Bashan, they turned and went up on the way to Bashan, and Og went out with all his people for battle. But the Lord said to Moses, and this is the important thing, do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all his people and all his land. You shall do to him like you did to Zion. So they killed him and his sons and all his people until there is no remnant left. Utterly wiped them out, men, women, and children. And that seems barbaric at the glance. But remember what God's standard was and he, why they're doing that. He said, you need to utterly wipe them out because they are completely lost. They are completely doomed because they do everything against me. And if you reason with them, if you live with them, co-mingle, they will lead you astray with their idolatry, with their paganism. So you do not associate with them. You completely wipe them out. And they did that. And they could go out with confidence, just like we know the battle is won with Satan at the end. They just had to obey the Lord. Do not fear. I've already beaten them for you. I've already, My word has spoken, and I have declared that we have won the battle before it even started. So all you have to do is go out there and get it. Go out there and win. It is guaranteed. If they obeyed, they would win. If they did not obey the Lord, they would lose. You're going to see that a lot, especially in the book of Joshua. So, if God has declared it so, you have to believe him. That's where faith comes in. He has won all of our battles, too, in life. We just have to trust him. And then we come to the comedic duo here, Balaam and Balak. They have to, for the purpose of reading this, you know, they, their names have to be so similar that you are gonna uh, intermix them. But, so apparently Balaam was some sort of prophet for hire. Uh, apparently he had some sort of a reputation of being a uh, a paid you know a paid prophet that would divine things that would bless things and that would curse things. And it seems like he believed in the true God, the God of of Israel. But he would also do things that were not biblical things that were not what God wanted would want him to do. He was trying to manipulate God by doing things that are contrary to God's will and trying to convince God to change his mind. but he made it very clear because remember the first time those guys came to visit him he went and spoke to the Lord and he said, don't go with them you will not curse this people period. No more discussion. That's it. But then, when these people went back and harassed him a second time, Balak was giving in to them and he wanted to go with them. It's obvious. So, because he humored them, he said, All right, you know, y'all stay. You know, I'll just go ask what God wants and I'm going to try and get him to let me go. And he already told him the first time, Don't go. But this time, God said, Go ahead and go, but you already know that I am not pleased with this. Because, we know this is true, because as he was on his way, an angel wanted to destroy him. But his donkey saw it. And what I thought was the funniest thing of all, even though we see that after three times of him hitting that donkey, that the Lord gave it the ability to speak. I mean, that itself is a miracle. The second and last time that I know of where an animal speaks in the Bible, besides the serpent through Satan. It speaks in such a rational way. I think it's hilarious. You know, um, why are you hitting me these three times? And Balaam doesn't even miss a beat. <laughs> That's what got me so funny about this. is He doesn't even miss a beat. It's like it's not even a big deal that the donkey's talking to him. He doesn't seem surprised by it. I mean, I don't know if he has experience with other animals in the past or, you know, in just his anger, he just doesn't care. I don't know. I thought that's very weird. But then God opens his eyes and he's like, hey, if it wasn't for that donkey, you, I would have killed you. And the donkey's response was like, have I not been your donkey all your life? I have been your donkey your entire life, Balaam. I have never done this to you. Have I ever done this to you? No. So obviously I'm doing this for a good reason, Balaam. I mean, I never thought a donkey would tell him that. But that is so funny. But anyway, so God instructed him, go ahead and go with them, but you're going to only say what I tell you. So you see some obedience in Balaam. But you know that he is a divided man. He's interested in the glory. He's interested in the fame and his reputation and the money, probably, from Balak. Because that's what motivates him to keep going. If he just flat out refused to go with Balak, then you would know that he was legitimately obeying God. But he's still pushing through, hoping to get something out of this. So the Bible calls that a double-minded person trying to trying to satisfy the things of the flesh and satisfy the things of God at the same time. And God did not have to use him, but he chose to. And uh, the, the way this happened is so funny. They went to the edge of the wilderness. They said that Balaam told him some instructions, how to set up some altars, and let me go talk to God, see what God says. And... God says, I'm going to put some words in your mouth. I am going to speak through you. And you're going to say exactly what I tell you to say. So then he goes back and it's a blessing. It's not a curse. And Balak is like, what are you doing? I brought you out here to curse them, not to bless them. And Balaam said, I, I have to do what I'm told. I have to say whatever God tells me to say. And then Balak's all right. All right, let's go somewhere else. Let's try this again. <laughs> like that didn't work the first time. Let's just try it. Maybe this isn't the right location. Maybe God is better off if we did this somewhere else, which I don't know the rationale, but that, that, that rationale is just <laughs> hilarious to think about. So they go somewhere else. Same thing happens. I'm going to go talk to God. God says, I'm going to put these words in your mouth again. Something different, but it's another blessing towards the people of Israel. Despite all the complaining, God is faithful to his people. And he never stops being faithful to them, even though they are not faithful to him. And then, so the second time he blesses them, and Balak is just like, Don't do anything anymore. Just shut your mouth. Stop blessing them, and don't even try and curse them anymore because you're just making it worse. And he's like, Didn't I just tell you? Whatever God tells me, I have to do it. And then the funniest way to end the chapter is okay. Let's try this again. (laughs) He's like, all right, maybe God will like us cursing his people, his precious people, some other place. (sighs) This guy's not very bright, but they are wasting their time. And Balaam is, he's caught in the middle here, but uh, Balaam is going to find that God is definitely on Israel's side. And whatever God's good pleasure is, it's going to happen. That is beautiful. And this story has been so beautiful today. I'm thrilled to have read it with you. And thank you for joining me through it. I know that this commentary was very long, but there is so much in here. I only scratched the surface. But I encourage you to study this portion of Scripture deeply. It's definitely worth knowing. But that's it for today. Thank you for taking this journey with me so far. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you tomorrow. Until then, take care, and God bless you.